welcome to the Boss Ladies Podcast. I'm Olivia Wary, and as a young female working in the industry of technology, I'm constantly struggling to find my voice and overcome challenges thrown my way. I've decided to have conversations with boss ladies in every industry to hear how they do it. Boss Ladies is intended to inspire women and men of all ages to overcome their fears, explore moonshot thinking, speak up for who they are and what they believe in, and move up in their respective industries. Every day we are faced with challenges, so it is my intention to empower you to get the advice you need by interviewing top executives who have been through it all. On today's episode of Boss Ladies, please welcome Christina Vogel. Christina is the Chief Operating Officer at Modus. Modus is a digital studio that makes products people and businesses love. Built from scratch in 1999, Modus mixes innovation and a deep understanding of human behavior to create digital products and experiences that move people. Why don't you start by just telling me a little bit about yourself? All right. Right now, I'm the Chief Operating Officer at Modus. We are a digital product studio and um, a software consultancy. And I've been here 15 years, um, which is a really long time, but I I love it here, uh, to be honest. And um, I spent the majority of my career as a database engineer, and I grew up pretty modest means. My mother, I grew up with my mother and my grandmother in Vineland, New Jersey, both pretty sick. I started working at the age of nine, and um, I haven't stopped. So I went to school on a full scholarship. Question, um, what was the job at nine? I was picking peppers on a local on a local farm. Side by side with migrant workers, I remember this one woman that like I would try to show up before every day, <laughs> you know, or like pick as much as she could pick. And yeah. <laughs> um, I never did. <laughs> but I went from there to doing everything I could on that farm, cleaning the vegetables, working, then moving into the fruit stand and I just I just kept working my, with my mother and my grandmother as sick as they were mm-hmm. we were on welfare and I that drive to not be poor was yeah. really um, really propelled me so I've been very goal oriented very ambitious and wanting to you know accomplish a lot and be able to provide for my family and those kinds of things so that's been a, a running scene for me. Wow. That's amazing that you were able to turn such a tough situation into motivation to strive for something better. I think that some folks are blessed with a built-in network and parachutes and things. And sometimes that makes them lazy. Yeah. So I'm grateful for for my experiences, to be honest. Yeah. Um, so then you said you were you got a scholarship to school, um, and what were you studying? So I studied geography. I have a degree in geography, and I focused in on geographic information systems and statistics, and um, I wanted to be an urban planner. Oh, interesting. I went to the Atlanta Regional Commission, and really coming out of Clark University, I started work on OpenVMS and Oracle and started to do systems work. And I went to work for um, the Office of City Planning and Urban Development and the Atlanta Regional Commission. And I was doing transportation demand, a travel demand forecast modeling, and a lot of Fortran and C. 
and I loved it. <laughs> and I really, I really liked the um, analyst work. So I continued to do that. I moved to California. And that must 90- have been a big change moving to California. Yeah, I, I did that to be close to my grandmother's sister, mm-hmm. who's a mentor of mine. Yeah. And I moved there really just before the internet was exploding and the dot-com surge was happening. It was a really creative time. And I decided, like, there's so much going on. The last thing I want to do is be in government. So I started taking on database projects and as an analyst and as a programmer and and then eventually as an architect. And I did thousands of data integration projects over my career. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. I am excited. I want to ask you a little bit more about the engineering culture in a second, because um, I'm sure it was very different then. And maybe you've watched it sort of grow and, and transform over time. But to start, I do want to know sort of what is your day-to-day like here at MODIS as the chief operating officer? I like to make sure every day that I'm taking care of myself. So exercise, good food, some meditation. And I like to find little ways of building that into my day because I have children. I have an intense job. And so that's really been an important bedrock to me being able to handle all of those things, I feel. Today, for example, I went to an event. I went to see the president of Planned Parenthood as part of a breakfast for the 92nd Street Y fellowship that I'm a part of. That's awesome. And I got to hear her speak. I was here by 9.30. I tend to hit all of my communications and things so that I can hit the ground running when I'm here. We're a little short-staffed at the moment, so I'm doing a lot of interviewing Mm -hmm. for a product manager. Oh, interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I manage the product management group. I'm also responsible for people and operations, and we have three offices in the Philippines, Argentina, and here. So on any particular day, I'm probably having meetings around HR uh, or facilities and finance and so today I met with a, um, it's referred to as a POE, so it's just a, a vendor that came in and yeah. wanted to sell a platform to us. Mm-hmm. And Are you um, traveling a lot to those different locations? I have been to, um, no, okay. no, not really. Okay, so it's more like remote management from here. Yes. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of Zooming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta love Zoom. <laughs> yeah. I had four hours of interviews today. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's Um, a lot. (laughs) uh, Most days I'm hitting tactics, orchestrating work, and then trying to chip away at bigger initiatives that move the ball down the court for Modus. That's awesome. Very cool. So then, yeah, let's I, let's sort of dive into the first part of your career sort of that paved the way to Modus. I'm curious, you know, as a database engineer, what was the engineering culture like and how have you seen it change over time? The change that I think is so remarkable in retrospect is the the cultural shifts that have transpired. I've been in business about 20 years. And as I was saying, I really, my career opened up at the same time that 
this internet culture was blooming and a startup culture. Mm-hmm. And that startup environment in Silicon Valley really pushed the boundaries of what it meant for where you work, how you work, who you work with, and all of the rules just started to break down. You didn't have to show up at an interview in a in a suit with a nice watch. Like the way that you dressed for work, the way the the spaces were designed all started to change and the startup culture really forced that. And you've seen silos break down between teams where engineering never speaks to design. You know, that that kind of thing used to happen. And yeah. there's a gr- much more collaboration and there's greater inclusivity. Mm-hmm. That has really blossomed um, over this arc of um, maturity that we've seen in the digital space. It shows up today in gender-neutral bathrooms, and it shows up in like really great collaborative workspaces and in bringing your whole self to work and in laws like what has just taken just happened in New York City where everyone by September is required to have a lactation room. I think that the startup culture and also agile development practices have had a lot to do with that because it really challenged the the power dynamics and helped explain what motivates people to build really great work. And we learned that with small teams, you can build amazing things. The, The paradigm prior to that was that you needed huge budgets and massive hierarchy, deep silos. Yeah. That's all changed. Yeah. Um, That's made space for all kinds of personalities um, and needs. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. And even like from a product management perspective, when you see the shift over sort of how products used to get developed in this waterfall mentality or yeah, methodology versus now it's more of an agile process where you have different sprints and every two weeks you're reevaluating like are we on track is this what we want is this going in the right direction versus right. hey we're going to build a product and then we're going to show it to everyone and this is our product and right you know um right a lot of the, the that agile paradigm is rooted in this notion of what motivates you and when you own your work and you're able to have control over the way that that work is orchestrated and you do it in a collaborative manner and those those groups of five or seven are swarming together over the same thing the commitment level goes way up their velocity goes way up and right there's that opportunity to switch gears and stuff yeah yeah it's it's great Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm curious sort of what has the engineering diversity looked like throughout your career? <laughs> and what do you think that we can do to sort of continue improving that? When I started my career, I, I came up against at least a half a dozen really strong engineering managers that were female and like a generation over me. Mm-hmm. And within five years or so, all of those women disappeared. Interesting. And I didn't really think about it too much. Like, they were no nonsense, and they were tomboys, and they were analysts, and they were interesting, 
people that then they just kind of disappeared. Then I spent 10 years working in this engineering capacity and did not work with another American born female. And all of my thinking through that period of time was like, that's cool. I love this. <laughs> I love what I'm doing. And I just was so bullish that I, it, I didn't notice. Yeah. <laughs> and, but there's a lot more discussion about that now. And so my awareness to this really has grown over the past seven years or so. And I learned that my experience is actually well-documented. In the 80s, women were graduating from computer science programs at 50% of their male counterparts. And by around 1997 or so, when and this the internet and startup culture really started to take off, this archetype evolved mm-hmm. of this male nerd awkward person whatever <laughs> building facebook and whatever yeah right <laughs> like there was no room for women to identify and they disappeared we are now at like 16 percent, but it's growing again yeah and we're turning we're turning the corner on that i believe and there's more talk about getting children of color and girls interested in STEM um, and trying to really change what it looks like to be part of that culture. And, um, and, and I think, I think we're going to see big changes. I do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and what do you think that we can do to continue making those changes? I heard this TED talk the other day, and I can't cite the source, but um, she said, if there was one thing that you can do, don't ever let a girl say she doesn't understand math. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, And that at 16 or something, you know, a lot of girls will make the decision that they're not good at math and therefore not pursue sciences and Mm -hmm. those things. And so then my number one job right now the top of my list is really making sure my daughter feels just as strong in the arts as she does in the math and science and other things and, and help prop her up and, mm-hmm. and make sure she feels confident um, yeah. doing that kind of work. But then also I've led some coding workshops with Brooklyn Robot Foundry uh, here at MODIS. Uh, we've done two events where we brought in a second grade class and a fifth grade class and build a game and uh so just trying to make that fun and also as part of that work showing that there are many different ways to show up in the digital space as a product manager um creative and as an engineer we need the diversity of the of the personalities there yeah definitely I will say that there was a paper that was published last year in CHI, which is the Computer Human Interaction Conference. Mm -hmm. And it was really fascinating because they talked about how there was a study done on classroom design Mm -hmm. and how the way that the classroom was designed actually made women or made girls think that they they weren't going to succeed at Mm -hmm. whatever class they were taking. And it was typically like a math or science type class. And this paper actually took that to a new level and talked about the web design of actual like course descriptions online 
And they found that a lot of them had like Star Trek and Star Wars and all of these things that women wouldn't relate to. And they would see that that sort of web design and web layout and they would think, oh, I, I'm not going to do well in that class, so I won't take it. Right. Um, and it's interesting now that we have this newfound awareness of these I don't know, barriers to entry or yeah, (laughs) exactly. And now that people are becoming more aware of them, they're actually able to fix that, which ideally will allow for more women in STEM, even at an earlier age. So I definitely think that's awesome. You can find more information about this at the ACM Digital Library. The paper is called Gender Inclusive Design, Sense of Belonging and Bias in Web Interfaces, written by Danae Metaxa Kakuvuli, Kelly Wang, James Landay, and Jeff Hancock. So, you know, what are some of the challenges that you faced being one of very few female engineers, especially throughout your career when you were maybe the only female engineer? The biggest challenge that stands out for me was when I had, my children are 14 and 11 now, Mm -hmm. but when they were newborns, toddlers, elementary school no one else around me had children. And so I was pumping in in a shared bathroom (laughs) and not wanting to, I was afraid to share any of like the joy that I was experiencing with having a baby and and toddlers and little, little ones around me because there weren't any, no one else had children. And, and they were all guys. I locked, put that in a box and tucked it away. I very much avoided being identified as a mother because the last thing I wanted to do was to be the mother on the team, like the, the nanny. Yeah. That was a big challenge for me. I knew what I was doing. I knew I was putting that in a box yeah. and locking that up, uh, hiding those challenges. Do you think women, um, particularly mothers, are still having to do that? That's hard for me to know because I've been at MODIS for 15 years Mm -hmm. and I've seen things change here. I've seen a lot of men have uh, children of their own and and watched what that experience was like for them. And it's a lot of open sharing. (laughs) advice giving that that would happen and I I still didn't feel comfortable but I should have yeah I could have um so that's been a big wake-up moment for me like Mm -hmm. why maybe I was being too guarded got it with that why do you think you might have been too guarded a fear of motherhood raising questions for others that I wouldn't be available or dependable or um, and I, I'm still not sure how much of it was real and how much was manufactured, but I can tell you that I, Modus as a company is extremely supportive of this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's not unique to us. Yeah. Now. Do you still feel like you're facing this challenge now as, as a mother here, even though your kids are much older? No. And that has a lot to do with... The fact that the leadership at MODIS really understands that you have to be strong in all areas of your life to be good at um, delivering great products and great work. And that if those other areas aren't aren't strong, 
then you're probably not going to be strong here either. Yeah, I think that makes sense. What do you think that men can be doing to be better allies? Men can be better listeners. (laughs) I think we can all agree on that. (laughs) Men can be better listeners. Men and women communicate differently. There's often, right, if we're going to generalize, um, a leap to, to, to trying to solve that can often happen for men before empathizing with or um, taking in enough information to get a clear picture. Not, it's, a, it's, a, it's a generalization, but it, but it does happen. Men could be better listeners. But I've got to tell you that over the course of my career, I've had really great men in my life that have stood up for me and advocated for me. And when men can do that, it's really powerful for their female colleagues. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think it makes a really big impact as well, just on the culture. Sometimes even just in one meeting, sometimes if you just get that support from a man, it it really sort of changes everything. Yeah. So what do you try and do to empower younger engineers, both male and female or just female? (laughs) I guess I would say that Talking to folks as they're embarking on their college journey or their professional journey and really trying to dig into what interests them is in some ways the, it's really valuable for me and can be really helpful to those folks that are trying to make decisions about um, where to focus their energy or shore up insecurities about their capability in one area or another. Helping a youth that you know well understand themselves (laughs) can be pretty powerful. Definitely. Um, And I know you do a little bit of work with girls who code, right? Um, Can you tell us a little bit about that? I've been a guest speaker. Oh, awesome. I would love to do more. I've been (laughs) a guest speaker uh, twice. Oh, awesome. And so neat. (laughs) Uh, They, these these girls choose to go to school over the summer and work their way through this program. And ultimately, they will build something that they can walk away with and develop some coding skills. And along the way, they'll have people like me come in as a guest speaker and talk about their work. So I've had the chance to do that twice. What's great is that if you can capture the interest of a teenager, <laughs> you know, the the questions that follow could be um, have been have been neat. You know, going into those experiences, just trying to keep their attention, and I want my work to sound exciting enough that they want to do it to do it too. Yeah. Usually, uh, well, in both cases, I've gone in trying to really show the full spectrum of what it means to work in a team-based environment to build software. So it's like this idea that one person can build something great all by themselves. And and while that's true, yeah, it's not a one-person activity. And how do you how do you come together in a team? And what are the different roles that are played? And how does everyone support one another? Um, and right, giving this perspective that 
there are many different roles to be played in the engineering space. So in both times that I've done that, that was my goal was to take the horse visors off. <laughs> well, it sounds like it's definitely very motivational for them. And I'm sure great to hear, you know, that the work that they're learning and the code that they're learning how to implement, they now can see someone who's actually doing that in real life for their career. So that's awesome. Um, and then I saw you were recently named a 92 Y uh, woman in power fellow. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. I follow girl develop it, which is this national organization, but there's a really great chapter of New York city and I follow there. They provide training and really try to lift up the skills for economic empowerment for, for women, especially women tra transitioning in careers and, they send out this great newsletter and this, <laughs> this little line was there about this fellowship. And so I, I um, started to read about it. And honestly, I didn't know anything about the 92nd Street Y and what an amazing institution it is for New York City. And I spent a couple of weeks working on my application. They're very focused on helping women in senior roles get to the next level and also give back to the community and give back and help all women sort of rise up into the senior ranks. And so you see more women in COO and other chiefdom, <laughs> positions of chiefdom. And so far it's been amazing that I had this breakfast this morning with the president of um, Planned Parenthood and wow, what an amazing individual she is i decided to do this fellowship because i've been in modus for 15 years my network is really small and that was something i wanted to work on i wanted exposure to to other people doing wildly different things for myself and yeah. so now i have this built-in network of 32 women and i have a mentor the coo catcher fire is my my mentor through this program and just this one amazing person after another with a, with a lot to learn from them. I love to hear that. That is very cool. So then, yeah, tell me a little bit more about some of the mentors you've had throughout your career. Um, you just mentioned one that's sort of a mentor now, but what about in the early database days? <laughs> I've had three. Okay. I think back on fondly. The first was my grandmother's sister. She was born in 1910. She broke every rule. Her... Parents wanted to put her brother through college, and when they refused to send her, she left home. And she traveled and worked her way to the West Coast. In her 40s, she started the first female-run publishing company. And she had a contract with the California Wine Board um, and helped popularize wine in California. That's amazing. Her name was Paula Fortune, and she was amazing. And... We were pen pals and I sent her every report card and she was very interested in young people and I was very interested in her. And she had a lot of really valuable advice to me through my um, early 20s. And because of her, I met Linda Fossler. Linda is an, an executive in Silicon Valley and she worked for Hewlett Packard the, the Hewlett Packard. <laughs> and she worked her way up. Yeah. Um, and she was in the business of silicon chips. 
And (laughs) (laughs) so all through my really formative years, she was there with professional advice and personal advice to me. And at about that time, I met a gentleman named Willie Drinks, who also was an amazing professional in the engineering space. And he helped introduce me to other engineers and we would share information. Sometimes I was able to help him, but most of the time he was able to help me navigate. And he really taught me politics, how to, how to manage politics in the workspace. Had a lot of great advice about how to manage and how to become a manager What do you think has been your greatest obstacle in your career? And what have you done to overcome it? I'm probably my greatest obstacle. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I'm too optimistic, really, to think like that. And I, I, I view everything as an opportunity. I really do. Like, I really, really embody that. Yeah. And try to leave myself vulnerable and open to, to feedback and learning and educating myself as a, as a core value. So, you know, the, my biggest challenges have been personal and managing those and managing my career at the same time and figuring out what, what's the right mix. So you don't kill yourself. Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, when you start working at age nine, I'm sure it's difficult to sort yeah. of learn the, I don't know, that balance. <laughs> Having that balance, I think, is the biggest challenge. And so I double down on the exercise and put good food in my body and um, try to relax. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So can you tell me, I feel like all the studies show that women don't brag about themselves enough. So I would love to hear like what you feel is one of your greatest accomplishments in your career. One of the things that I feel proudest about was helping lead Modus's transformation from really a waterfall-based organization into an agile and lean UX environment. That was not an easy transition because our clients weren't ready for it. Mm-hmm. And we had to train ourselves and educate ourselves. And um, I didn't do that alone, but I did help lead that transformation. And it's been great for us. It's led to more profitable projects. It's led to better work. It's led to better life, work-life balances. And when you add in DevOps and Lean UX and all of these other things, all of these other advancements in the way that we organize, it, it's great to see the way that we build software today. That's awesome. Um, you know, it's funny coming in as a product manager now, you know, been working for, for two years I've only read about waterfall methodology, so it's funny to sort of, I don't know, think about it in actual practice. It's just luckily something I ever haven't ever had to be a part of, but I just, I can't wrap my head around it. Like, how did it work? <laughs> I, I'll give you an example. Um, I have two things I want to share with you about yeah. that. First, I'm going through this round of interviewing right now, and I realized for the first time that folks aren't doing waterfall at all anymore. And and I've almost interviewed Agile Native, all Agile Natives. Yeah. <laughs> and so that was a major wake up for a moment for me. So yeah, that's pretty neat. <laughs> that's pretty neat. But uh, an example of that uh, was that maybe 
17 years or so ago, I walked onto a project as a subcontractor to Hewlett Packard Consulting at Bear Stearns, and which they don't exist anymore, but it was a financial services company. And I walked onto a project that had already been in progress for a year, and it was a million dollars over budget. And we were in a in a workspace that was just like a farm of computers in a in a tight line. And oh man! <laughs> um, and I was charged with figuring out how much more we had to do in order to like bring this data warehousing project to a to a close. And inside of a couple of days, I was like, "You're at least eight months off. <laughs> Get like at least eight months <laughs> off the mark here." Um, but what had happened was I probably six months, eight months was spent doing requirements without ever talking to the customer. And then someone signed off on them. And then an engineering team that not only read those documents started to build something and they probably went way far off track and they tried to boil the ocean. It wasn't just this data warehousing project. There were two other, three other major other components. And so at 18 months, the project was so far off the mark from what Bear Stearns clients needed, they shut the project down. Wow. And that was common. And that kind of waste, the money just was gone. Yeah. That kind of waste was typical. Was it Hewlett Packard's? problem it, it was the it was the way everybody worked back yeah then. you know we want to make sure we get these requirements just right we need to build everything so that we don't miss anything and then we need to sign off on them and then we need to rigorously make sure that we cross all of our t's and dot all of our i's and then you know things change like, <laughs> the market changes yeah the, the probably the stakeholders that wanted this weren't even around anymore. Yeah. So the opinions on what was right for the customer were wrong. Nobody was doing user interviews or mm-hmm. user research or putting prototypes in front of potential customers. That was not happening. My like jaw is dropping right <laughs> now. You can't see that through the podcast. And I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That is super interesting. So I've kind of asked all my questions. Is there anything else you want to talk about before we finish or any questions you have for me? I'm curious to hear from you. What do you love about product management? (laughs) This could be a five hour podcast. (laughs) I love. So, you know what? I think it stems from the fact that I am really passionate about the product I work on. Mm. I think that's the most important thing as a product manager is that you really believe in your products. Yeah. My background is in user experience research. That's what I studied mm-hmm. in graduate school. And I worked in a lab as a, in um, my undergraduate degree. And throughout that time, like a lot of it was really understanding like human behavior. And it's really fun for me now to actually work in an environment where I can basically do agile (laughs) user research and actually like talk to people and understand how they're thinking and understand their mindset and then actually go back to the product and and make a decision and make a change and actually make the product better for the user 
And that really excites me because it's like a human psychology component of it. And then being able to like actually work with engineers and, and work towards a common goal and, and be able to then deliver something that, you know, is enhancing someone's life. So like link NYC is one of the products I work on and it's like probably one of my favorite products, honestly, because not only is it a public good, but it also generates revenue. And and there's Mm. been so much work and so much time into talking to people, talking to people on the street. I've done a lot of like street research where we literally approach people on the street and we're like, hey, we'll give you some money. We just want some time to like understand how you interact with this product. And then we get to go back to the drawing board and and adapt. It used to be acceptable to build digital experiences wouldn't even call them products Mm -hmm. that um, without ever getting input from a user. And uh, a lot of us, you know, were so excited to be online and by all of what was happening and all the companies that were being created out of thin air that we didn't question it too much. But, but now that competitive edge is the customer and the user and Mm -hmm. it's just not acceptable to build something that doesn't work for people. Yeah. And it's great. I don't think I, honestly, I don't know if I would have wanted to be a product manager if it, if it were, were different and the going back to the waterfall methodology and not factoring in the user, because that's really what Mm. gets me the most excited. Right. So even product management is um, newish, right? Yeah. There were, project managers and product owners and business analysts. But I, I think now we're, we're viewing these digital experiences often as products and marketing them and positioning them as such and looking at the customer, looking at the competitive edge. It's a much more holistic view of what we're building and product. The, this whole practice area speaks to that. Yeah, just great. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Cool. Well, thank you so much for your time. This was awesome. And I really appreciate everything you had to say. So cool. I love what you're doing. <laughs> and um, thanks for inviting me. Thank you so much for your time and knowledge today, Christina. Check back soon for another episode of Boss Ladies.